Welcome to the Better Questions podcast. Today, we are really excited to be talking to a person who all three of us have been nerding out a little bit for, Dr. Robert Alter. He is a Jewish Old Testament scholar. Uh, He's written some staples in biblical studies when it comes to books like The Art of Biblical Narrative and also The Art of Biblical Poetry. And in 2018, he just released a massive three-volume translation of the entire Hebrew Bible. Like you do. Yeah, exactly. Let me just (laughs) translate it all. Which is super helpful and amazing. Uh, It's won him the Penn Center Literary Award and the Coret Jewish Book Award for translation. And in his spare time... He's the professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California at Berkeley. And you can find him in the back of any book on the Bible in the notes and references because he is most likely referenced. Right. Yeah, that you may not. That is pretty much true. Yeah. Casual Bible readers may not know who he is, but trust us when we say this is like all of the people you respect and admire that interpret the Bible. Those people read this guy's books. Is he like the LeBron James of like Hebrew scholarship? I think so. I think so. Up there? I don't know. So we are really excited, like Chris said. And uh, this is our interview with Robert Alter. So, what we wanted to do in this interview was have him talk about the book of Jonah because we think that that's a fascinating book. We think it's a book that we need to be asking a lot of better questions on. And we thought it would be really cool to have Dr. Alter talk about the book of Jonah and use that as a way to expose us to all the amazing work that he's done. And so Dr. Alter helps us re-examine the old ancient book of Jonah that you've all heard in Sunday school and ask new, insightful, and helpful questions. Roll it. And also... So much from stuff that you've done, like uh, Art of Biblical Narrative and some of those types of things, and then also through all of your extensive work with translations. And so what we thought would be kind of cool is instead of just asking questions about all of those individual works, if we could pick um, a, a book from the Hebrew Bible and kind of talk about that book as a way to, as a way to reflect all of those things that you have brought out from your work, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and we um, we are fascinated with uh, the book of Jonah, but I also know from the the Christian perspective, it's one that it just seems like so many Christians miss so much of of what's there, and so I uh, we I really would love just to ask you a bunch of questions and, and hear you talk about it from your perspective, talk about 
some of the narrative things, all of that kind of stuff, if that's cool. So what, I, what I'd love to start with, if, um, if you wouldn't mind uh, for a minute, is to just have you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work. Um, I had always been fascinated by the Bible, uh, and uh, especially at the time by biblical narrative, and uh, uh, wondered what was so remarkable about it when it seemed to be rather simple. You know, it, it was very spare and seemed <coughs> to use a limited range of means. And about 15 years into my career, uh, I thought, well, I do have some notion now of what's going on in biblical narrative. And I wrote one uh, article uh, on the need for a literary perspective on the Bible, which I thought was going to be strictly a one-off thing. Uh, but uh, it got a big response, many letters to me personally and to the editor. So um, I figured, well, I have some more ideas on biblical narrative, and I'll write another article. And pretty soon I had four articles in print, and I was on my way to writing the book that became The Art of Biblical Narrative, which has now been continuously in print about 37 years. Um, I still thought, well, uh, you know, I'm not really technically a biblical scholar, so I've finished this book and that's it. But then the book was very well received, so I thought, why not a book on biblical poetry? And at that point, I had slid down the slippery slope <laughs> into biblical studies. And so... I continued to write articles on uh, the Bible, and uh, then by um, kind of happenstance, uh, I ended up um, trying to do a translation of the book of Genesis, uh, thinking that it was a rather quixotic undertaking, because what I was uh, attempting to do was to get into English something uh, of the stylistic power and subtlety of the Hebrew, which I felt hadn't been done by previous translators, and that it probably would not work because um, the structure of the two languages is so different, uh, and the range of meanings of key terms in the two languages is so different. But it turned out to be... Um, rather uh, better uh, a um, an approximation of what I had aspired to do than I thought, and it was well received. So I went on to do another book and then another book, uh, the Hebrew Bible, and um, uh, in the end uh, I realized that, that I had not dreamt of doing this, but that I, I had done almost two-thirds of the books uh, of the Hebrew Bible, and that with a big push, especially getting through the prophets, which were especially challenging, I could do the whole thing, and I have now done the whole thing, and it's out in three very large, handsome volumes produced by W.W. W. Norton. So in a nutshell, that's the story of how I came to biblical studies. That's awesome. 
before we jump into the book of Jonah, I'd love to ask what were some of the biggest takeaways from you when it comes to that whole process of translating? Well, um, uh, the first takeaway is what I would call humility. <laughs> that is, <laughs> you, you realize that you, you can't altogether do what you want to do. And uh, at times you're, you're faced with, with uh, more or less impossible choices where you have to sacrifice one thing uh, in order to achieve another. I'll give you an example. Yes, uh, this, this is something that, that ended up being a, a slightly clunky choice on my part, but I felt I had to make it. Uh, everybody knows about Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> but uh, actually... There is no Adam in the Hebrew uh, of the um, uh, the Garden story. There is a, a, a first human creature who is called the Adam. Now, you, uh, with the exception of oddities like the Donald, if you put a V before... <laughs> Yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned that. But if you put a V before uh, what is generally a um, a proper name, uh, it can't be a proper name, but it's a common noun. And it, it, what it means is the uh, Adam in, in biblical Hebrew means person or human uh, and uh, and that's what it means so it, it's it's not um, uh, uh, a name but but uh, uh, the no you can't say person so I said the human and I realized that that sounds a little weird uh, you know the uh, 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 you know, he created the human, uh, and it did enable me to um, reproduce a pun in the Hebrew that, that is in, in the second version of creation. He created the human, hu- humus from uh, the, the, the soil. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, uh, the word for soil is Adama, and the word for um, human is Adam. But you see what I mean, that, that in order, maybe my uh, uh, translation choice jolted the reader into a certain recognition, which is a good thing, but it probably annoyed readers, uh, some readers, because it seems so strange. Well, um, I, I appreciate you giving us that example, and I know I said that I would love for us to kind of walk through uh, the book of Jonah, we've got some questions we'd love to ask you about it. Yeah. Um, so from from our perspective, we're coming um, from the, the Christian tradition and you're coming from the Jewish tradition. What are maybe some ways you have seen those two traditions read the story of Jonah differently? Well, of course, uh, as I'm sure you're aware and... and uh, many of the listeners to this podcast will, will be aware uh, 
the traditional way of uh, the Christian way of reading what was called the Old Testament was to read it as a prefiguration of the full revelation of the divine truth in the New Testament. Uh, This way of reading was called typological. That that is the the various figures in the Old Testament were seen as prefigures, prefigurations of the ultimate story that you get in the Gospels in the New Testament. So, uh, oh, you know, for example, um, uh, the um, uh, the binding of Isaac, which interestingly in Christian tradition is called the sacrifice uh, of uh, of Isaac, is seen as a prefiguration or uh, a typological first expression of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, in the case of um, the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah's descent into the belly of the big fish was not really called a whale in the original, is uh, is seen as uh, 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 Christ uh, three days uh, uh, after the the crucifixion, bef- before the resurrection, and of course uh, Jonah does <laughs> come out out of uh, the the, uh, the the sea and, and the belly of the big fish. Now, uh, let me say right away that that um, uh, to to say that that. Uh, the typological reading, which has a certain symbolic beauty for sure, is not an authentic reading of the Hebrew text, is not just a, a, a kind of Jewish resistance to the, um, uh, to the Christian take on Hebrew scripture, but it's uh, the almost um, universal view uh, of uh, uh, modern biblical scholars, uh, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and secular. That, that is, uh, scholars today assume, and that certainly is my assumption, that uh, the uh, that writings in Hebrew. Uh, uh, produced several hundred years before uh, Christian scripture were not prophecies uh, of uh, Christian scripture. And that's certainly the way I, I read Jonah. Now, I can go on with that, but why don't you ask a further question? Yeah, so I think that um, with, obviously with any reading of scripture, taking some of the context into consideration is important. So what, what do you think is really important about understanding the relationship between Israel and Assyria for the story? And what do we miss when the story, when, what do we miss from the story when we don't pay attention to that? Okay. Let me first briefly set 
the book in an approximate historical context. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, we uh, we know for sure that it's a um, a late biblical book. How do we know this for sure? Well, the, the Hebrew language, just like any language, like uh, English, evolves over time. So uh, I, I would say that the, the the difference between the Hebrew uh, of um, uh, Genesis or the, uh, or the Hebrew uh, of uh, the book of Samuel and the Hebrew uh, of uh, Jonah is roughly the distance between the English of Shakespeare and our English today. So there are various ways in terms of vocabulary, uh, uh, idioms, uh, even grammar. You can tell that that, um, uh, the uh, book of Jonah was written in the late... um, biblical centuries maybe um i am guessing uh the 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 5th century uh, before the christian era okay uh now um what uh had occurred by then with uh monotheism is that it had become uh, much more insistently universalist than it was in, in the early centuries of, of the biblical period. So you, you have a writer, we don't really know a, a, anything uh, about him biographically or what his very specific uh historical context was. So you have a writer who is strongly impelled by uh, the vision of the universality of the God of Israel. In other words, he's not just a national God, but he's a God of the whole wide world. And, um, And so he frames this story, which is a kind of I would say a parable about biblical prophecy. That is, um, uh, it doesn't seem that that this uh, Jonah was a historical figure. Uh, he takes his name, uh, Jonah the son of Amitai, from a prophet who is mentioned only in passing in the book of Kings. Uh, And we know nothing about that prophet, uh, which may have uh, made him a convenient hook to hang the name on, or a convenient, uh, uh, well, a convenient name to use for for this story. And um, uh, maybe the two names were useful. That that is, uh, Jonah means Dove in Hebrew, and uh, and perhaps we're supposed to recall a bit of the the flood story, where, where uh, there's a, a universal cataclysm and Noah sends out out the dove to uh, 
to see if the waters of the flood have receded. Uh, and uh, the last, uh, not the last name, but the patronymic, Amitai, seems to um, incorporate the, the Hebrew word for truth. So that, that may get into the picture uh, as well. Now, uh, let, let me, since you asked about Assyria, uh, let me say something about um, the slight oddity of uh, Assyria in, in this story. Assyria, of course, is an arch enemy of the people of Israel. The Assyrian Empire is the, the empire that, that uh, uh, utterly destroyed the nord northern kingdom of Israel probably around 721 uh, B.C. and, uh, and uh, th that exiled most of the population. That's how the ten, lo ten lost tribes got lost. So they're really bad guys. Uh, this book was written several centuries after the Assyrian Empire ceased to exist. There was no longer any Assyria when the book was written. So, so uh, Assyria becomes a, a, um, a kind of um, parable uh, of uh, the... the um, uh, the enemy kingdom, the axis of evil, you might say, uh, which nevertheless is under God's uh, providence and care. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, gosh, this is just, it's amazing to have you on. And uh, I was wondering if we could shift the conversation just a little bit. Um, yeah, and our our podcast is all about um, trying to bring unity uh, to really not even just the Christian faith, but to to different perspectives and to to ask questions that call us all into action rather than just um, are just exercises. And uh, it, with that in mind, um, I'm you know you're probably aware of how divisive that this book can be. Um, specifically in the Christian tradition. I'm not aware if, if it is in uh, the Jewish tradition. But uh, for, in our tradition, this book ends up being kind of like a litmus test for whether... You, yeah, like, um, so if you believe that this story is history and literally happened, then you believe in uh, a God that can do miracles and is... Um, the God of the Bible. But if you say, no, if you look at it um, from a literary perspective, um, perhaps historical accuracy isn't really the chief takeaway here. Um, even if you just present that as an option, people say, well, you don't have faith that, that God could keep a man alive in the belly of a fish. So, and, you know, if... if this book isn't true, then it throws out the whole Bible as any part of it being true. Um, and and we we have really encountered both of those perspectives in all of our, each one of us in our faith journey um, as Christians. But I wondered if you could speak to that and, um, and how that might be misguided. Yeah, I, I think it is uh, uh, misguided alternatives. That is, um, 
the truth comes through many channels. Uh, there is uh, a, a literal truth, like, um, uh, it, uh, let's say, did the prophet Isaiah exist, and did he deliver these prophecies in the kingdom of, of Judah in the waning years of that kingdom? The answer is yes, <laughs> and and those prophecies have great power, you know, moral power, I think, uh, uh, right down to our, our own historical moment. Uh, and then there is another kind of truth, um, and I, I used the word parallel before. Let me point to a couple of things a couple of details in the book of Jonah that really don't have anything to do with with, um, with miracles or God's uh, intervening in, in human affairs, but rather um, with, uh, let's call it realism. That, that is, uh, th there are a couple of ways in which you can clearly see that the author of Jonah is not interested in realism. He's getting at the truth in a different way. Okay, one has to do with the dimensions of Nineveh. Um, it is said to be uh, a, uh, a three days uh, walk of a man from uh, end to end. Now, if you do a little arithmetic, um, uh, let's say a healthy person walking at a respectable pace could probably cover at least 10 miles in a day. So uh, a three days walk w would make the, the span of the city uh, 30 miles across. As big or maybe bigger than, than well, let's say as big as Los Angeles <laughs> or, or as big uh, as New York City from the the Bronx down to uh, um, Brooklyn. There was no city at all in, in uh, the ancient world that had that span. You see how this has nothing to do with, with God's miracles. Right. It's just the, the dimensions of the story. Now, uh, another detail is uh, that um, when... Um, uh, the king of Nineveh uh, recognizes the, the the truth of Jonah's moral denunciation uh, and uh, bids his entire population to uh, fast and to put on sackcloth. Um, he includes in the fast all uh, the beasts owned by the Ninevites and not only in the fast but he he, he, uh, he bids the um, uh, the animals to, to wear sackcloth and, and that's an all you see it's a, a, a fantastic detail and it's almost a comical detail uh, the point being to um, convey to the audience of the story the absolute comprehensiveness of the the act uh, of penitence 
undertaken by, by, by the Ninevites. But uh, you can see that, that there is no way in which it could plausibly have happened that, that the, the animals fasted and the animals donned uh, a sackcloth. Um, so I would, um, I would put the, um, uh, the three days in the belly of the fish as in, in the same category. That, that is, it's not an issue whether God can or cannot perform miracles. So that, that's a decision of faith. And I, I, I won't try to adjudicate that. But it, it, it's part of this, um, uh, Fabulous, in, in the sense of fable, is, is part of this fabulous uh, vehicle of storytelling, which is taken up by, by the author of uh, of Jonah. That that is the point is that in his story, he shows how a man who wanted to flee God, which of course is impossible and uh, 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 wanted to, to uh, shirk his prophetic calling, uh, goes down to the very depths that he, he uh, uh, experiences something quite like death that seems utterly hopeless, and then he is... Uh, is rescued, and when he's rescued, he realizes he has to carry out his mission as a prophet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, and I know we've got a couple other like um, more technical questions, maybe about translation and Hebrew. But before we get to that, I just wanted to ask quickly, um, uh, just as for sake of make sure we get this in. Uh, so if you know, f- for reasons we just discussed, you just discussed. Asking or or really diving into the question, did Jonah really happen? Is it historical? Might lead you to some misguided uh, answers. Yeah, I definitely believe that. Yeah. So, what would you say would be better questions we should be asking as readers coming to the book um, that will lead us down more helpful and more healthy avenues? Oh well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say. Um, First, well, there are a couple of questions. One is, uh, uh, it's a fable about prophecy, but it's also a fable about moral responsibility. Uh, And and in a way, uh, this is something that that, uh, we we all face. uh, That that, that is, uh, if... um, uh, let's take a, a, a current example. You know, if if we read in the paper about, or people don't read the newspaper so much, and we hear in the news or see in the news that that, uh, that that families are being separated at the Mexican border, and that thousands of children are. are Put in what amount to detention centers 
sometimes uh, under horrendous uh, experiences, do we have some kind of responsibility to answer the calling of our conscience in contemplating these things? Okay, so that, that's really something that is addressed in, in the book of Jonah. Be, beyond the specific uh, 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 mission of the prophet, uh, but um, the, uh, the 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 other thing which seems maybe a, a larger concern, um, the uh, the book of Jonah really asks us to contemplate what it concretely means for God to be the God of all creation. That is, not just one particular nation and also not just uh, a a certain uh, uh, spiritual elite, you know, those who are chosen to be saved, but everybody, and not just everybody, but but all living creatures. uh, uh, you remember the, the the book of Jonah ends, uh, and it's the only book in the Bible, and one of the few books in literature that ends uh, this way. It ends with a question, that is, uh, God says to to, to Jonah, uh, uh, yeah, "You had pity uh, on this gourd, this kikayon plant, that that uh, uh, one night was there and the next night was not, and." Shall I not have pity over a city of six hundred thousand human beings and uh, and all kinds of beasts? That's a very resonant thing, and it it kind of uh, uh, puts the the, um, the implications of, of monotheistic belief in uh, a, a new powerful light. Right. It's as if it's it's like pointed, you know. I, I, I don't know. I look at it this way at least, and maybe you can correct me, but I kind of look at the, the book as that last question specifically. It kind of hangs with me, and it makes me wonder, do, do I care about all people the way God does? Right. Well, I, I think that's exactly the kind of response that, that the the writer wanted to, to get from his audience. Uh, when you were giving some of your examples earlier, you were pointing out some of the ways that there's humor in the book, irony, repetition. What, what would you say are some different poetic or literary devices that you see used throughout the story of Jonah? Okay, well, uh, let me see. Uh, first, I would say there is um, the the recurrence of of going down. That that is uh, there's almost a kind of opposition between standing up or rising, which is the first imperative verb that, that God speaks to. Uh, um, uh, to Jonah, he says, "Arise, go and, and uh, speak to the the uh, the city of Nineveh." And by the way, speaking to the city of Nineveh is 
uh, as I think I say in my commentary, it's a little like um, telling a, a a Jew, let's say, in 1936, to go and speak to the the uh, the people of Berlin and tell them they're on the wrong path. <laughs> you can see, but why um, Jonah doesn't want to do it? Right. Uh, so there's anyway this rise up, which is what God expects of Jonah, and instead his response is a series of goings down. That is the 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 verb to go down is repeated several times. First, he goes down from we don't know where he is exactly, but it may well be Jerusalem, which is up in the hill country. Uh, uh, and it says he goes down to Jaffa, which is the port city uh, of um, uh, ancient Palestine, and then he goes down into the the uh, the far reaches of the ship, and then he goes down into uh, the belly of the big fish, and then uh, in a, a kind of uh, antithetical movement, he comes back up. That's really interesting that you bring that up because I I have heard before about the repetition of going down, but I've heard you say elsewhere that the first thing any character says in the Hebrew Bible is always really important. And I've never caught before that the very first thing God says is get up. Right, right. <laughs> The, the first thing that uh, that Jonah says is a little surprising. That that, that is, I, I don't think he speaks until late in the first chapter. Of course, it's a very small, compact book, uh, and uh, the, the the captain of the ship speaks to him and says, uh, "What are you doing asleep?" Right. Uh, uh, and and I think by the way that that um, the the sleep is not something I commented on in print uh, has a, a certain resonance that is it's a, a spiritual slumber as well as a, a literal uh, right. sleeping and uh, also um, if you think about it, uh, we, we've all encountered this, I think, in our experience. That, that, that is, that there are certain people that, that when they're faced with uh, uh, some terrible challenge or they're depressed, that they they just get into bed and they sleep. You know, it, it's a form of escape, right? <laughs> uh, and. Uh, uh, and so the the uh, the captain tells him, you know, what are you doing asleep? And um, uh, he rouses him, and and then they they ask him um, uh, who he is uh, and uh, and uh, what's his business, and he comes up with, with this. Um, Uh, I should alert uh, readers that 
the the designation Hebrew is pretty consistently used uh, in uh, the Bible when foreigners are referring to Israelites or when someone is speaking to a a foreigner and using the term that that the foreigner would use. So he says, so therefore he doesn't say, uh, I I am of the people of Israel or or, or I am a Jew. He says, uh, uh, I am a Hebrew uh, and uh, I uh, uh, fear the God of heaven and, and earth. Um, well, I, and this is a slightly abbreviated quotation, but it's in that direction. Now, uh, there's an almost comical uh, uh, contradiction between what... Uh, these are Jonah's first words. So uh, there's an almost comical contradiction between what Jonah says here and uh, the way he's been acting so far. That That is... He says he fears the God uh, of, uh, and it's that word, as in English, in God-fearing, means both to fear and to revere. Um, he uh, he says he fears the God of heaven and, and earth, but uh, what he's just done is to presume that that, uh, that God is not the God of heaven and earth because you get away from him. Uh, and, and you don't have to do what he uh, enjoins on you to do, uh, and and in, in a way, uh, the whole story is then uh, conceived to uh, make uh, Jonah confront the contradiction between what he said and what he's been doing, and and. Maybe one hopes to to uh, actually implement his fear uh, of the, the God, God of heaven and the God of earth, and to recognize that he is that. That that's amazing. Uh, this is Andrew. I showed up to the podcast a little late, so if you don't recognize this voice, it's not a not a rando walking okay, in. Okay, I, I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, uh, I read. Uh, your book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, when I was a senior in college, and uh, it really uh, rocked my world, um, learning to analyze the Bible through a more literary lens, whereas up to that point, it was much more historical, and uh, one of the things I, I loved about what I learned from that book is, uh, one of the examples is you talk about a biblical motif where the patriarchs um, all meet their wives, or a lot of them meet their wives at a well, and through through that repetition um, and comparing and contrasting, you learn a lot about the characters' personality straight traits, how that scene unfolds in comparison to the other patriarchs. And I was just wondering, well, and of course, that that's, that scene is picked up in John's Gospel, right? Right. And uh, I was wondering, in the book of Jonah, is are, are there any major biblical motifs the author is using or calling upon um, through allusions from elsewhere in the Old Testament? Is there anything like that in play in the book of Jonah? Yeah, I, I would say that there, there is one central thing. 
the, since Jonah is four short chapters, uh, there's maybe not a lot of room to deploy uh, many different uh, um, uh, conventions or motifs that, that, that you find in, in earlier biblical narrative. But, um, okay, all the prophets, um, and uh, this is, uh, registers a kind of reality uh, of uh, the difficulty of prophecy. All the prophets about whom we have any details about their uh, dedication as prophets don't want to uh, undertake the task. You know, uh, Isaiah says, uh, I I am impure of lips, uh, and uh, in a people of impure lips I dwell, right? Uh, Jeremiah says, um, uh, I am uh, just a lad, uh, and you know how could I undertake the, the, this huge task? And Mo- Moses says, uh, uh, you know, send somebody else, boss. Uh, you know, th- th- this is too much for me, and uh, I am um, uh, uh, heavy, heavy-tongued. Uh, I don't have the uh, articula- articulateness that called upon for a prophet and a spiritual leader. Uh, so what Jonah does is to take that recurring scene of the resistance to the prophetic mission and push it much further. Uh, I find that interesting. Yeah, I would love to ask you then following up that just because I've heard it go both ways, and I'm curious your personal opinion. Do, do you think Jonah actually has a change of heart in the fish, or no? Well, in one way, we we, we, we know he has uh, a change of heart. And now here's something interesting that happens with a change of heart. He has a change of heart because he realizes that as much as he would like not to do it, uh, as much as he he would like not to go to Nineveh for probably two reasons. One is that he's going into the heart of the enemy's empire, right? Which may be a scary thing. But the other thing is that, that uh, he has this sneaking suspicion that if if he delivers the, this prophecy to um, the Ninevites, which we get in, in a very compact form, in 40 days the city uh, of uh, Nineveh is to be overturned, which uh, presumably if you don't uh, uh, renounce your evil ways, but that, that's not even spelled out. Uh, he has this sneaking suspicion that uh, the um, Ninevites will listen to him, and then they will be saved, and he doesn't want them to be saved, because they're the enemy. He hates them, right? God doesn't hate them, but he hates them. Uh, so, uh, he, he then through the drastic experience of near death, 
he realizes first that he can't escape God. There's nowhere. It's like the psalm where, where you know, if I uh, go up to, if I soar to the heavens, there you are. If I go down to the the the, the belly of the underworld, you were there. Uh, so he finds he encounters the truth of that. So he realizes that he has to carry out the mission. Uh, so that is the change of heart, but it's only a partial change of heart. And that's what I find interesting that, that there is a, a sort of, um, human, uh, plausibility about Jonah's character. That, that is, he goes and carries out the task of prophecy, uh, and then he sees that, that overnight uh, the, the, Ninevite, the Ninevites uh, uh, renounce their evil ways, they, they, they fast, they put on sackcloth, and they're not going to behave like evil Ninevites a- anymore. But he still uh, has, the, the, he harbors the, this sense uh, of, resentment and really probably uh, hatred toward the, the Ninevites. What he would uh, really like to see is uh, the, the whole city with all the 600,000 people uh, go up in flame like Sodom and Gomorrah. So he, he sits on that little promontory overlooking the city in his uh, lean-to uh, and uh, and waits to see what's going to happen, still hoping that that uh, the what's going to happen is going to be really bad for the, the Ninevites. So that's what God then tells him at the end. It's not enough that you just go through the paces of delivering my words of castigation to... Uh, to the, the Ninevites, you have to also realize that they're human beings just like you, and you have to care about them as I care for, about them. Right, and that's why, like, so often, if you hear, I don't know, I've heard Sunday school teachers try to sum up Jonah like like the message is, be obedient like Jonah, and I just want to go, did you actually read the book? <laughs> like, he's not he's not all that, he might carry it out. Uh, anyway, but I also like part of me wonders uh, if not like it seems like the book of Jonah is unique in the fact that it's giving a prophetic message that you know in a lot of ways what I take from it is is Jonah is just a big finger pointing at uh, the Israelites saying like this is you, you are Jonah in the way you're you're supposed to be a light to the nations but over and over again you're running from that calling and you're you're not treating the other nations or even amongst yourselves the way God has called you to. And I take that, then that finger is pointing at me also as I read it. Am I doing the same thing? And so, yeah, I just, I feel like it cheapens it to, to boil it down to just obedience. And yeah, I think that's absolutely right. In other words, to go back to what I said initially uh, about the uh, the powerful message of universalism, the, the universalist 
perspective uh, of monotheism. It's in the, that you can't be a, a xenophobe and a, a true believer in a universal God. Uh, so you have to give up the xenophobia. Right. That's right. and that's a super relevant message today, Absolutely. and that just and that just plays to the power of narrative. Is that it always has questions to ask for people in all different times. And speaking of modern readers reading an ancient book, um, and you've mentioned a lot of what the author of Jonah is doing in the Hebrew, but I would just love to hear more about how, as English readers, the sorts of things we miss out on when we only read the book uh, in the English and we don't try to dive into uh, what the story is doing in the Hebrew. Well, um, yeah, that, uh, I don't know if I can readily um, uh, illustrate this. Um, I, I would say that the um, uh, the use of significant repetition, which is one of the major literary devices of biblical Hebrew, perhaps doesn't quite come through in in the same way and um, maybe um, the, the, there's something about uh, the biblical Hebrew prose which manages to be um, very plain spun in a way, uh, it, it, in the narrative prose, and the, the poetry is, is rather different in this respect. In the narrative prose, uh, fancy vocabulary is not used. <coughs> um, <coughs> a sort of primary set of terms uh, is uh, what the, the narrative depends upon, and yet it has a kind of haunting dignity. And uh, I've tried to suggest some of that in my translation, but of course you can't get it entirely in another language. Right. What about the uh, what about the poem that is in chapter two, like when Jonah is praying inside the fish? Like, is there anything going on in the Hebrew there that's just really hard to bring out in translation? Well, yes. The the poem is really a psalm. In fact, what it is, uh, if you look at it very carefully, is that it's uh, a Thanksgiving psalm, which is a little weird because uh, it's presented in the story as um, Jonah's prayer in desperation in uh, the... the uh, 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 in the belly of the fish, but but actually he says that I was going down to the the, the bottom of the sea, uh, and you rescued me. So it it, it lines up quite uh, clearly with, with the Thanksgiving Psalms in the Book of Psalms, and this uh, I should say that it, it was a regular technique of literary composition in the Bible to, to insert um, 
certain texts into the text that, that, that you're writing because they made sense in the context. So, like, uh, 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 quite a few of the Psalms used uh, drowning or near drowning as an image for near death. So that that's what made sense, and that, that's why it works e- e- even if it's a little bit off in, in one respect. So I, I guess you, you get the um, uh, the resonance w- with the Thanksgiving Psalms, which is probably clearer in the Hebrew than it would be in, in English. And then uh, you get um, the because it's poetry, you, you get this very compact uh, uh, use uh, of parallelism and rhythms and, and even a bit of internal rhymes. For example, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I went down to the to the. Um, the roots of the mountains, uh, 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 what is it, uh, weeds were wound round my head, uh, which is, that, that's pretty much my translation. That's not a bad approximation, but the, the, the Hebrew sounds better. The Hebrew is, the kitzvei harim yaravithi, that's three accents in, in that half of the line. Then suf chavush l'roshi, in the second half, just three words and, and, and three accents. And it has a, a, a lovely cadence that you can't quite get across in English. Awesome. I, I'm curious. Um, I've, got, I've got a question for you, and then we'll kind of start gearing towards a wrap-up here. Um, why do you think the ending is so abrupt? Uh, I've always wondered about that myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that since it ends with an abrupt question and no answer from Jonah, uh, it it leaves us to um, uh, to question, maybe to question ourselves. So that is, we we say, wait a minute, if God has pity. On six hundred thousand people, men, women, and children, and even on the animals that, that are living with them, where does that leave us? You know, uh, 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 you know, uh, should we emulate? Is there anything in us that is capable of emulating divine co- compassion? Right. And that I think the, the abruptness of the question at the end helps us to uh, wonder in that direction. Right. Uh, well, I've got one final question, and we'll, we'll let you go. We want to honor the time. Um, but again, on our podcast, uh, we want to ask better questions that bring unity to different perspectives and call us into action. And, and with that in mind, um, I just wanted to end by asking if you have any uh, just final thoughts for our listeners on... Um, how how we should be looking not only at Jonah but really the whole Old Testament uh, all of scripture how should we be open-handed or how, how do we view it 
um, through a lens of unity to try it and um, oh gosh, how am I trying to to say this question? The uh, we live in such a polarizing times, and I wonder if you could just speak on how you think we should hold the scriptures to to try and bring unity instead of division or peace instead of argument. Well, Chris, the, the book of Jonah is a particularly good text to invoke in response to your question because of the universality uh, of its message. But I, I would add uh, something else which may sound peculiar, but I'll spell out what I mean briefly. Um, I think, as you know, and in asking me about the art of biblical narrative, you've gestured in that direction. I have always tried to foster a literary approach to the Bible. Now, you might say, what does a literary approach have to do with the religious vision of the Bible or with... Uh, uh, this kind of unifying you're talking about. Okay, I I would put it this way. Let's just... Poetry uh, uh, would be a complicating issue. I'll just focus on narrative. Okay. We all love stories. I mean, it it is a, a, um, a, a, a... an activity of human culture. I, I don't think there are any human cultures that that don't have storytellers. It it engages us, it draws us in. Now, the the biblical writers were, most of them, storytellers of of genius. And what does this have to do with uh, uh, the religious imperative that, that, uh, that led them to frame these stories? I, I think surprising as it may sound to people whose notion of the Bible is, let's say, strictly theological or, or strictly Sunday schoolish, uh, the, uh, the artfully told stories were a way of not only drawing us in, but also in terms of, as I think we've seen in my response to some of your questions about Jonah, in terms of complicating the religious message, showing its uh, uh, many facets, showing the um, the contradictions and ambiguities of uh, uh, human nature itself under God's I- imperative. So, so that I, I think that the literary artfulness of the stories is a way to draw us all in whatever our, our belief commitments, uh, and then it, it's a way of getting us to, to understand with more subtlety and more profundity the, the religious messages of the stories. I love that because I feel like when you look at it as a story, the emphasis becomes more about the questions you bring to it and the the questions the text throws at you and less about, hey, you need to see it this way. And it becomes a communal experience where you're all saying, this is what the story did to me and the questions it brought out of me, which is ultimately something we're trying to do right. through this podcast. 
and so I love I love that emphasis on um, the literary approach and the storytelling approach to the scriptures. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. If our listeners want to dive more into your work, where's the best place for them to find you? Well, uh, for um, a, a short take on my work, I would say my two books, The Art of Biblical Narrative and The Art of Biblical Poetry, are a good place to, to begin. And then I've done this. This is much, a much longer take. Uh, I have done the, the, this, uh, I blush to admit, 3,000-page, three-volume work, which is uh, a translation of the Hebrew Bible with pretty abundant commentary. And uh, the, the more ambitious of your listeners might want to go there. Yeah, I started that the other day just in prep- preparation for this, right in Genesis, and I've, I've really enjoyed it so far. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been well, very good talking with you. You too. Thank yeah, you thank so you. much. We appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been an honor. Well, that was our interview. He's by far the smartest person who has and ever will be on this Hello. podcast. <laughs> but if uh, you liked this conversation and you want to hear more, follow us on our podcast stream. You can find us on iTunes, uh, pretty much anywhere that has podcasts nowadays. And you can find us on Facebook at the Better Questions Podcast on Facebook. Yeah, so see you next week.